The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where like every week of every year since time immemorial, we're working to get you the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. So as I talked about last week, our first kind of whole month here... The first of the year is devoted to looking at the real estate market from different perspectives. Last week, we talked about how to deal with the kind of psychological and strategic things about changing markets because the market is always changing. This week, we're going to look at some market stats with a uh, guy who's like a professional market intelligence dude. And then tomorrow night at Cincinnati RIA, uh, we're having our national online chapter meeting where five of the most experienced people you could possibly hear from are going to talk about why, uh, what they are specifically doing right now and plan to do in the upcoming year, like exactly like what niches are they in? What, what are the, what are the tips and tricks for their different things that they do? When I say it's probably the most experienced panel you've ever seen, it's Pete Fortunato. It's Donna Bauer. It, it's Anthony Chara. It's Bill Tan. It's Tom Barry. I mean, these are people who have been doing a wide variety of very different things for a very long time. And their entire goal tomorrow night is just to talk about what they're doing right now. And you can decide whether you want to follow suit with people who have 30, 40, 50 years experience or not. You can get your link to join that meeting tomorrow night by going to CincinnatiRIA.com. That's com. But today, we are going to hear from Rick Sharga. If you're saying, boy, I know that name. Why do I know that name? Well, it's possible that you know it because Rick was on the show at the beginning of 2023, giving us his look at the market and the forecast. But that's probably not it. It's probably because you saw him on CNBC or CBS or NBC or ABC or Fox or Bloomberg or NPR the guy is like one of the most quoted people on the planet about real estate and mortgages and foreclosure. And he has been for 20 years. You've probably seen his name attached in the past to Adam Data, Carrington Mortgage, uh, Realty Track, 
10xauction.com, but now he has his own company that he is the founder and CEO of. It's called CJ Patrick Company, and its entire purpose for existence is to be a market intelligence and advisory firm for real estate and mortgage industry companies. So he's joining us by phone. Rick, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. Well, we'll see. We'll see what you have to say. Maybe it's great. Maybe it's like, you know, oh no. I, I, I don't know yet because I have just given up on reading media articles that talk about market statistics. They, they, they so yeah. often start out with, you know, a, a headline like, you know, home sales are doing this. And I'm like, oh, I got to read this. And then it turns out that it's actually a political article <laughs> like the like the real point of it is like well we need to i don't know have more taxes or create more programs or isn't it terrible that this is happening and i feel like i can't trust the stat because the the bent of the article is not actually meant to educate people about statistics yeah there's there's a lot of that and, and we're in an election year so people need to keep in mind that it's probably going to be worse this year than it is most of the time. We'll we'll probably see investors get vilified, uh, and that's not just big institutional investors. It's it's the mom and pop category as well. Uh, and then the other thing you have to be aware of, and, and I, you and I have talked about this in the past, is all the snake oil salesmen on YouTube who are breathlessly predicting the the ultimate price crash mm-hmm. in the housing market and the tsunami of foreclosures that's due to follow and if you only pay them three, five, ten thousand dollars for their course, they will gladly teach you how to prepare for that gloom and doom, and, and all of that's pretty much nonsense too. Yeah, I've been I've been watching the various social media channels. Some some, as you say, just the more general channels, and some really real estate specific ones. Um, I've been watching people predict the crash that's going to be worse than two thousand and seven since about twenty sixteen. Yeah. And uh, so far, the good news is they've been wrong every year. And, and if they're predicting it for 2024, you know, spoiler alert, I think they're <laughs> going to be wrong again. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. I say I'm feeling more optimistic about that I'm going to be happy to have talked to you today. So let's uh, let's go ahead and get into just some general stuff that you're seeing about the, the economy as a whole, because that's... Yes, the election year is going to drive some weird stuff. And you said you said, you know, investors are going to get vilified. I don't know what what papers you're reading, but that's already happening. <laughs> like That's not yeah. that's yeah. that's not some new thing that's going to happen here. Um, general economic outlook for, for this year, like where where are we now? What are the predictions about where we're going to be with jobs and wages and employment and you know, uh, inflation, all of that stuff that is ultimately going to end up landing on the housing market in some way. Yeah, and, and you're right. The, the economic factors are always the underlying uh, pieces that, that determine how good or how bad the, the real estate economy is going to be. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, boy, there's a lot to cover there. Um, We'll try and do the Reader's Digest version for your your listeners who are old enough to remember what Reader's Digest is. <laughs> um, 
The the good news is inflation looks like it's largely under control. I, I've developed my own uh, CPI, uh, which I call the Costco price index. Um, <laughs> and I've been telling people that uh, because really what it comes down to is there's, there's the inflation that's reported. And then there's what the consumer actually faces uh, in the real world, uh, gas prices, uh, home heating bills, and food prices. And their wonderful the, the wine salmon. selection prices. Well, that, that too. <laughs> um, and I'm, by the way, I'm a big Costco fan here, so I'm, I'm a little biased. But, um, I, you know, the, the salmon I bought at Costco a year ago at nine ninety nine a pound has been up to twelve ninety nine a pound for the last, you know, last probably six months. Uh, that's not a 3% or 5% or 9% increase. That's a 30% increase from a year ago. And, and I think that that really is kind of hit home. Well, the, the, the good news is I was out this weekend shopping and pointed out to my wife that the, the salmon was now 11.99 a pound, that she kind of looked at me cross-eyed like, what are you talking about? Uh, but, but that, that's a, a reversal. That's actually price, prices coming down. And I think we're, we're, starting to see that across the economy uh, to varying degrees. Uh, the last inflation report was a little over 3%, which is getting close to what the Federal Reserve wants in that 2% range. So I, I, I do believe they're they're finally done raising rates. Uh, I, I do believe that they've already acknowledged they're going to be at least three or four federal fund rate um, decreases booked in for, for this year. And because of that, I think we'll start to see finance charges come down. I'm, I'm, I know I'm jumping ahead into you know, the mortgage conversation, but 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 the the good news is a lot of the inflationary pressures seem to have abated, um, and and the Federal Reserve will will probably be able to back down significantly from their aggressive stance. The bad news is that I think they've already overcorrected, and and if you go back as far as World War II. Uh, the Federal Reserve now, for the 12th time, has tried to raise the Fed funds rate to get inflation under control. They've never done it as rapidly or as um, uh, significantly as they did this time. But eight of the last 11 times that they did this, uh, uh, a recession followed. And this being such a, a rapid, unprecedented and aggressive rate increase, very likely they've already overcorrected. And so the the economic forecasts that I'm looking at for this year either call for a recession, uh, and, and probably if we do have one, by the way, a fairly mild and fairly short recession, because overall the economy is actually pretty strong, uh, or they call for, for very, very weak economic growth, uh, you know, something that feels like a recession but doesn't quite meet the technical requirements. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really what we're in for. But but again, if you're looking for a silver lining in the recession cloud, it's that if we if we miss one, if we just have a slowdown, if we have one that's not terribly severe, likelihood is we don't see a huge spike in unemployment. There's still a lot of jobs unfilled out there, uh, and and maybe unemployment gets up to about five percent, which sounds a lot higher than it is today, but historically speaking is is a number that economists point to as full employment. So if I'm if I'm looking at the tea leaves for 2024 from an economic standpoint, we're either going to see slow growth across the country or a mild recession. We will probably see a little bit of an increase in unemployment which is is coming off numbers that are historically low 
and we'll, we'll finally start to see inflation um, really kind of come back to uh, it, its normal levels and, and be more under control. So, so that's kind of the, the top line for the economy this year, at least as, as far as I can tell from the numbers. Mm-hmm. So potentially a lot better than it looked like it could be when inflation was, you know, Costco inflation was well above the 10% that the government was reporting. <laughs> Right. And um, and it it looked like there was nothing for it but a hard landing. Yeah, and and you know one of the one of the reasons I'm a little optimistic about um, inflation in general is that the, the the numbers the government reports are very heavily influenced by housing costs. I, I believe about forty five percent of the, the the CPI number they put out to talk about inflation is related to rent or what they call rental equivalency for somebody who has a mortgage. And the data they're using is about a year out of date. So if you look at rental rates, and, and I'm sure your listeners are familiar with this if they own rental properties, uh, we're, we're coming off a ridiculously high period where on a year-over-year basis, asking rents were 10, 12, 15% higher than they were the prior year. Now they're pretty much flat. In some markets, they're even declining. So as the inflation reports, catch up to what's actually going on in the housing market today, uh, that that itself will drive inflation back down a bit. And and so for the first time in a long time, um, inflation is running lower than wage growth. So as people are getting weight, it, you know, salary increases, even if it's only four or five percent, it's still higher than the rate of inflation. So they're coming out ahead for the first time in quite a few years. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing, talking today to Rick Sharga about the actual statistics for the real estate markets. We are open to your questions. If you have a question, an argument, uh, you know, whatever about the statistics of the, the 2023 and 2024 market, 877-772-9658. Again, that phone number is 877-772-9658. You can also send your questions to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, talking today to Rick Sharga, who, um, I mean, he just, like, this is what he does. He gets lots and lots of different stats from lots and lots of different things and compiles them into stuff that we can understand and um, Rick, something you said right before the break was a great example of why real estate investors need to care about the stats. You said rents are flat in most areas and even going down in some areas. And I that's apparently particularly true in apartments in large cities, because maybe those are starting to get overbuilt. <coughs> But that's not just some random fact. That's like we need to be thinking about our purchases and our reserves and our, you know, the, the, the numbers of our own businesses in light of this of this stuff you're telling me. And, um, you know, you can watch a, a YouTube video that's two years old that says, don't worry about paying full price for a house because you can raise the rents 15% every year. And if you go out and do that right now, you're probably not going to be real happy with the results because 
markets change. Yeah, and, and you, you pointed out a couple of really important things there, Vina. The, the, the prices we're seeing for asking rents are very different market by market. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm working on a report right now that I'll, I'll be happy to share with you when it's done in a couple of weeks uh, that, that's taking a look at where, where asking rents went up the most and went down the most uh, over the last year for both apartments and single-family rental properties. And the, the other thing I'd point out there is that, uh, and, and this is a generalization, so it, it's not true in every market, but by and large, the rents on single-family rental properties, you know, homes that are being rented out, have actually held up better than apartments. Mm-hmm. And, and I think your, your instinct is spot on. Uh, we had a record number of apartments coming online last year. Um, by some estimates, as many as a million apartments across the country. And, and it's a good thing because we have people looking for somewhere to live and they can't afford to buy a house right now. But in, in some markets, we probably did have an oversaturation, uh, at least temporarily. And, and that, that's obviously having an impact on, on what people are able to charge for rent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you that um, even though all the stats that I see about the Cincinnati, Ohio market where I live are all about, you know, it's one of the 10 hottest markets in the United States and prices are continuing to go up at a higher rate than the rest of the country and so are rents. Uh, I have not found that latter thing to be true over the course of the past year. The the rents that I have been able to ask and get because it is in fact the market that drives rents, not the greed of the owner, as the media would have you think. Um, I have not really been able to raise the rents over what I was getting the last time. And it's not that I haven't tried, not put it out there, but you know, you got to be pretty aggressive about, Hey, if nobody's calling, <laughs> you got to lower the rent until you get somebody uh, who's really qualified or the people who the people who were applying were people who were in like a desperate situation that was of a nature that made them not likely to succeed <laughs> at at their yep. side of the rental agreement. You know, if you're being evicted right now because you didn't pay your rent, there's a pretty good chance that, you know, you're not going to be able to pay the rent at this new place either. So uh what I'm seeing in the big splashy reports and what I am experiencing in my own rentals and what other, you know, it's not like I haven't asked other people in Cincinnati if they're finding this to be true are not necessarily meshed together because I think it's a better story to say rents are going, are continuing to go crazy. We need rent control than it is to say. Well, well, yeah, I mean, that's rent rent control is the greatest uh, failed experiment that keeps coming back to life probably in the history of the real estate market. I know. Um, and they've tried it. We've tried it in like 17 different countries over like six decades. And, but, but they'll get it right this time. Don't worry. This time is going to be different. Mm-hmm. This time it's going to work. <laughs> this time we want to have all the, the terrible side effects of, of, you know, lower development, which ultimately winds up raising rents for everybody, but turning the, the, the existing rental properties into slums. It, it's a, it's a great idea. Um, I, I will t- I will say this. You, you keep talking about me and, and all the data that I consume, and I, I do get enmeshed in a lot of this stuff. Rental data is among the messiest data you can find uh, because the, the bottom line is that the majority of rental properties are owned by smaller investors, and there's no real requirement for any of them to, to report 
what they're collecting in terms of rent mm-hmm. in some centralized database on an ongoing basis. So a lot of this is either, I hate to say it, but anecdotal, or it's the data that are available on a limited basis. And and so I've seen some data providers, uh, there, there's one called Apartment List that gets quoted a lot. Um, and every now and then their data just goes crazy. We, we, we you know, see a 130% increase in rent. I'm, I'm over-exaggerating there. But, but it's because of this limited data set. And, mm-hmm. and, and so you, you do have that kind of volatility uh, when you're dealing with some of these, some of these providers that just don't have access mm-hmm. to a lot of data. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's none of anybody's business what, except maybe the IRS, what, what anybody is collecting <laughs> in rent when they're a small investor. But yeah, what that right. leaves, what that leaves as market statistics is what you actually always see quoted, which is asking rents. Not, yep. not, not, not what is my tenant who's been there for five years paying, but what is a property that I am putting back on the market because somebody moved out? What is that asking rent? And asking rent, as we uh, are all familiar with in this business, is not necessarily the same as what you end up getting. No, absolutely not. And, you know, the, the other reality for rental property investors is there's, there's intrinsic value in having that reliable tenant who makes their payment every time uh-huh. um, on time. And, and, and if you're not getting 100% full current market rent from that tenant, sometimes it's, it's a, a better alternative than losing that tenant um, oh, yeah. and, 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 and taking your chance with, uh, with whoever else might be out there. Yeah, I would say that probably 95% of small rental owners intentionally do not raise their rents to market every year if they have somebody who's in there, they're paying, they're taking good care of the property. You know, it's it's a couple of months of vacancy <laughs> because I, I raised the rent to market yeah. and they were like, nope, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go find someplace else is way more expensive than having, a, you know, $100 a month under market rent or something. Um, we need to you go. Know, you, we, some, oh, go ahead. Okay. I, I, I was just going to say you, you said something about reliability of the tenants, and there there are some data things we can talk about when we come back from the break. Uh, that that are some red flags in the economy that might be worth paying attention to. Oh yes, I definitely want to talk about that. But what I actually want to do is go to the phones because we've got a oh, call okay. on line one from Robert in Nashville. Robert, welcome Hello. to Real Life Real Estate. Robert? Rick, thank you for your comments. I really appreciate that and that clarity in just a few simple sentences. Uh, do you at all study the effects of the commercial and what seems like higher than typical office vacancy and how that may affect yeah, I've been the residential it. rental market? I'm at home now working in my home instead of going to my office, so there's empty office space now. How's that going to affect my area? That's a really good question, and thank you, thank you for the kind words, Robert. I appreciate that. Um, I, I have been following the commercial markets. Uh, office vacancy rates across the country are now at an all-time high. They're just under 20%, uh, which is the highest they've been since people have been tracking this going back 70, 75 years. Uh, if you go to the central business districts of some of the bigger cities, uh, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, in some of those areas, you're seeing vacancy rates as high as 40 or 50 percent. Um, the, the the impact on the single-family rental market 
is a little difficult to discern and is is going to depend a little bit on individual market dynamics. And the reason I say that is if the properties you're renting out are in that central business district of a city, it might be a little bit of a challenge. Uh, people might have only been renting there because it was near their jobs. On the other hand, uh, if there are people like you or, or like me that are working out of a home office uh, who don't need to commute to, to an office somewhere, uh, it, it might actually improve the opportunity for single-family rental properties in those markets where you're seeing more people have the opportunity to work from home. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I, I really haven't done a, uh, an analysis uh, or, or any thoughtful um, uh, look at, at how the, those two things are connected, uh, but 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 it's a it's a it's a, an interesting dynamic that we'll be watching over the next couple of years for sure. And Rick, well, I would think I, Rick I would and, think about that. But I'm sorry. Well, I I, I was just going to say, um, uh, JC from Las Vegas, uh, who is always very participatory in this show, although sometimes in confusing ways. Uh, sent a <laughs> sent a chart that's U.S. commercial mortgage-backed securities loan delinquencies, and in the office space, according to this chart, which is from Fitch Ratings, uh, the 2023 delinquency rate on office buildings is about three and a half percent. The 2024 forecast is eight, and the 2025 forecast is ten percent of these loans might go uh, delinquent. So if anyone can figure out what to do with all of this spare office space, there's going to be some real bargains available over the next couple of years, potentially. So why don't we convert <laughs> there to residential? Are, well, be, because that that's one of those great theories. Um, and sometimes it works out really well. But if you look at a, a uh, a modern office building. It's not built to be a residential unit. For for example, uh, zoning laws in most cities require that you have windows that open. If you're on the 25th floor of an office building, I, I'm pretty much guarantee you that those windows aren't meant to be Fixed. opened. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you have no stove, have, uh, yeah, there's insufficient no showering stove. facilities. Mm-hmm. There's insufficient well, I mean, sewer. If, if every every unit you would build into that office building that you convert to a residential unit would need to have a bathroom, right? But office buildings aren't set up that way. There's usually a central uh, restroom area, so you have to repipe the building. So I've talked to some developers who have told me in many cases it would be cheaper to demolish the office building and start from scratch uh, than it would be to, to renovate. Now, that's, that's not true of every office building. Uh, it's also not true... Wow. Uh, of a lot of um, limited service hotels uh, that that uh, also might make for good conversions to lo- to low price or affordable housing units with a little bit uh, of modification. So there's opportunities for that. I think you'll see some of that. Uh, I do think you'll see more people coming back to the office over time and more jobs created that will require office work. Uh, but uh, but for the next couple of years. Um, the office market is definitely still going to be feeling the, the effects of their, their COVID infection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rick, thank you. Great comments. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for calling, Thanks, Robert. Robert. Appreciate it. Uh, let's go to line two. Cheryl, who couldn't wait. Cheryl, if, you, if, we, we, if, you, if you're listening, you can call back in and uh, we will get to you after the break. When we come back, we're going to 
talk about that thing, that really interesting thing that Rick said right before Robert picked up the phone. But we can also take your calls or emails, 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, talking today to Rick Sharga, who is, you know, that guy who you always see his name in, seems like every article related to real estate statistics for the last 20 years. And um, Rick, you were saying some stuff in the bigger economy might also make us pause about the possibility of rents raising this year. What are those things? Yeah, a couple of red flags. Um, We saw consumer. So the economy is based on on consumer spending very largely, about two thirds, almost 70 percent of the the economy is, is built around consumer spending. We're seeing that pull back a little bit. Um, and, and we'll probably continue to see a pullback as we go through the year. But what's been interesting is, is how strong consumer spending has been uh, really coming out of COVID, and it hasn't slowed down. So strong, in fact, that in the third quarter last year, consumer credit card debt uh, went over a trillion dollars for the first time in history. Uh, and, and remember that the Fed has been raising the Fed funds right now for the, the better part of two years. So the average interest rate on a new credit card account is 25%. So not only are consumers spending a record amount of money on their credit cards, but they're doing it at a time when, when interest rates are almost as high as they've ever been. So the, the concern is that people are tapping into their, their lines of credit uh, because they, they're having a hard time making ends meet, which is why it's really important that cost of living starts to, to come down a little bit. The other red flag we're seeing uh, is that um, personal savings rates uh, have come down to almost historically low levels after spiking during the, the pandemic when the government was sending out stimulus checks to everybody. So that, that combination of higher debt load on credit and, and lower personal savings rates are, are definitely two red flags. If, if I'm renting to somebody right now, I'm taking a look at those two things uh, and just to kind of to backstop that a little bit more, um, we're seeing very low mortgage delinquency rates, but we're seeing delinquency rates in just about every other type of consumer credit go up. So more delinquent consumer loans, more delinquent credit cards, more delinquent auto loans. Uh, and, and so, again, these are things that, you know, one of them or two of them alone Maybe not that big a deal, but when you start seeing all these things bubble up, it it does give you cause to pause a little bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because when you think about the psychology of consumers, when things are tight, they're going to let the credit card go first, then they're going to let the car payments go, and then the next thing, the last thing, generally, is going to be the house. So let's you, you mentioned foreclosure starts mortgage delinquencies what 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 do those look like right now yeah the the good news from an economic standpoint uh not great news for investors is that mortgage delinquency rates right now are are somewhere in the neighborhood of three and a half percent um normally that number is somewhere between four and a half and five percent so we're we're seeing 
mortgage delinquency rates really almost near the lowest we've ever seen. Uh, if you have few loans that are delinquent, you're going to have fewer loans going into foreclosure. And foreclosure activity uh, ended the year roughly 20% lower than it was prior to the pandemic. Uh, we, we saw a year-over-year increase. You'll probably see a lot of misleading headlines talking about the increase in foreclosure activity. But we're coming off um, unusually and kind of artificially low levels of foreclosure because of all the, the government programs that came to play to protect people during the, the COVID pandemic. So we, we're, we're looking at um, probably um, a, a, another year of lower than normal foreclosure activity this year, unless we do have that recession and the unemployment numbers spike up a bit. Uh, what I will tell investors is that the, if you're looking to buy a foreclosure today, you have to approach it very differently than you would have during the last cycle. And, and by that, what I mean is the last cycle, Great Recession cycle, virtually everybody who went into foreclosure lost their homes to the lenders, to the banks. So the, the model there was wait for the bank to repossess the house and then go buy it on the market as what the industry calls an REO, a real estate-owned uh, property but from the bank. And, and that was where you got most of your best deals and, and, and most of the sales took place. Today, because homeowners have a record amount of equity, the properties aren't getting as far as the foreclosure auction. About 65% of the time people get a foreclosure notice, they're selling the property uh, on the open market at, at close to full market value uh, prior to that foreclosure sale so they can protect their equity and not lose it all. So waiting around for a bank-owned property in today's market is folly. Um, those numbers are running about 70% lower than they were prior to the pandemic. And even the number of properties uh, going to sale at a foreclosure auction uh, are off about 50%. So if you're going to be looking to buy a foreclosure property this time around, what you really need to do is find the the homeowners who are getting that first notice of default or or in Ohio, that first list pendants filing, uh, that that default uh, on on their loan, uh, and reach out directly to that homeowner to, to negotiate a deal uh, before they sell it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that nuanced uh, explanation of, yeah, there's, okay, there's foreclosure starts, there's foreclosure sales, there are REOs, they're very different stages, and we deal with them at different stages depending on what's going on. And also, thank you for not saying told you so, because I think I <laughs> argued with you a year ago when you were on and said, yeah, for, you're not going to see a much of a increase in foreclosure i was like no way that's impossible people are and you were right so double or nothing well, or 24 <laughs> no yeah sure if you want. Um, look there's here, here's here's what i will tell you depending on whose numbers you look at i've looked at, at numbers from both uh adam data uh and black knight which is now owned by ice technologies and both of them acknowledge the same thing uh, homeowners in distress have a ridiculous amount of equity in their properties. Um, Adam's data suggests that about 80% of homeowners in foreclosure have at least 20% equity in their homes. Uh, and, and just to, to play with some numbers, if you look at the median sales price of a home in the country being $400,000 and assume that that homeowner has 20% equity in, in foreclosure, that means they have $80,000 to protect. They're, they're not going to 
be stubborn enough to hope the foreclosure auction doesn't take place and risk losing eighty thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars. And and so you're you're seeing a lot of that kind of activity. Somebody loses their job, even if it's a temporary situation, they can't catch up. They have tons of equity in their home, which doesn't protect you from going into foreclosure. But what it does do is give you a chance to get out with a soft landing uh, rather than just, you know, run it out to the end and lose everything at that foreclosure sale. And I think we'll see more of that as the year goes on. I think foreclosure starts will probably approach pre-pandemic levels by the end of the year. But we'll continue to see more of those people sell those properties and, and the auction numbers and the repossession numbers will continue to lag pretty seriously behind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So <clears throat> let's um, two biggest. But before you go there, before you go there, one area you will see more foreclosures in, and this Robert reminded me of this, our, our last caller, uh, is in the commercial market. Um, Adam also reports on, on those numbers. And right now, commercial foreclosure activity is running about two to three times what it, its normal levels would be. Now, putting those numbers in perspective, that means we're seeing about 600 foreclosure actions on commercial properties a month instead of 200. So not huge, huge numbers. But to your point earlier about uh, delinquency rates increasing in the commercial market, uh, and, and we are seeing foreclosure activity increase in the commercial market, there are probably going to be some opportunities for investors that are not the $50 million, you know, uh, huge high-rise office building, uh, but that $500,000, $750,000 million, uh, you know, office in an office park in the suburbs uh, that, that are either in delinquency or foreclosure. So a, d- a different way of looking at foreclosures than just looking at the residential market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very true. The two biggest things on the minds of all the real estate investors I know over the last couple of years, like like if you said, what two things would you change? <laughs> the number one thing that they would say would be inventory. And the second thing yep. they would say we've already dealt with, which is interest rates. Because um, even if you have the money and the credit and whatnot, there just hasn't been much on the market over the over the past. Well, it's been that's been more than two years. But what do we know about inventory levels, days on market, all those things that we look at and go, more houses, please. Well, the Federal Reserve, you can blame the Federal Reserve for this to a certain extent. Um, and why not? They're fun, they're fun to pick on. Um, they've, they've raised the Fed funds rate so high uh, that it caused a huge spike in mortgage rates. And the mortgage rates went so high that they locked in a lot of prospective home sellers. So really the only people selling their homes today are people that feel like they need to. Uh, or that where they have to, and, and that's that's keeping the inventory numbers really low. Now, if you go pre pre COVID, we were already looking at a housing shortage because the builders had underbuilt for for a decade, coming out of the Great Recession. So that was not a huge surprise. But but what the Fed actions did was exacerbate the problem, uh, and it's not because homeowners are greedy or because psychologically they can't handle a seven percent six and a half percent mortgage it's it's math again uh if you're sitting on a three percent mortgage rate 
and you sell your house and need to buy another one, if you buy another house at exactly the same price as the one you sold, your monthly mortgage payments just doubled. And, and most people simply can't afford that. So we're not going to see a huge number of existing homes um, enter as, as new listings uh, until we see mortgage rates come down pretty significantly. The, the economists that I talk to think the inflection point is probably somewhere around five and a half percent or lower, uh, which is a number I don't think we're going to get to in mortgages in 2024, probably not until sometime in 2025. So we're, we're going to see bits and pieces of properties uh, coming to market, not the bits and pieces of properties, but we're going to see a small, relatively small number of properties in the existing home market uh, get listed for sale really for the foreseeable future. The, the good news, and there is some good news, is that the builders really have started to ramp up a bit, um, and, and we've seen housing starts and permit numbers uh, climbing over the last half of 2023. So the builders are bullish on the future. They're, they're not going to overbuild. They're going to be very judicious about how many properties they bring to market. But uh, we're now seeing an increase in the, the number of housing starts for single-family owner-occupied properties, uh, even as we're seeing a little bit of a decrease in the number of multifamily properties that are being built. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so the builders, I think, have, have caught a post-pandemic break in uh, the fact that building materials actually started to go down in price last year after being, oh my gosh, sky high uh, for a while there due to supply chain issues. And I think the labor market for the kinds of folks they need to actually build the houses uh, has loosened up some because back when we were all locked in our houses and we all wanted new decks and new sunrooms and I never noticed how much I don't like my kitchen. So... I need. I've got this money from the government. I'm. I need a new kitchen. And boy, it was hard to find a contractor there for a while. Uh, but I think part of uh, the the home builders' ability to build again has probably has to do with some of their costs of building have actually come down. Well, the the big the big number that came down was lumber, uh, and and home price, you know, home construction prices uh, are are definitely impacted by lumber. We've seen some other, you know, oddities. I mean, I, I looked at some numbers from a company called Verisk that tracks um, about 30,000 different items that go into construction. Um, and and their assessment was that in the last quarter of last year, uh, overall construction costs, including labor, went up about 6.6%. But that was far lower than it had been in uh, in prior quarters because of what you just described uh, with supply chain disruptions and labor shortages. Lumber came way down, but but little things like paint and doors went up. Doors was the category that had the highest quarter-over-quarter quarter price increase. Hmm. Don't know why. Uh, maybe doors are us shut down for a while or something. I, I, I don't know what caused it. But <laughs> yeah, knob shortage, who knew? But, uh, but yeah, and and... and Again, the, the, what's also been interesting is what builders are doing to accommodate changing market dynamics. For example, they started to build slightly smaller, slightly less expensive houses. So while we've seen existing home prices go up 6%, we've actually seen new home prices, the median price of a new home being sold, go down year over year. Uh, they're also, in many cases, bringing cash to closing. So rather than discounting the price of a house, 
they're bringing cash in and they're paying down mortgage rates. I saw a, a builder in Denver advertising mortgage rates as low as 4.9%. So they're, they're doing some very creative things. Their, their share of market is higher than usual. Um, and they just have much more flexibility and, candidly, much more motivation to sell than a lot of existing homeowners do today. Excellent, because the real solution to the housing shortage is not rent control. It's not get rid of the hedge funds. It's not any of the things that we see seem to uh, be looking at legislatively. It's just straight up build more houses. So I'm I'm glad to hear that that is in fact happening now, Rick. Um, you sent me a super interesting report uh, from a company called RCN Capital that was more, it's more of a measure of uh, sentiment amongst various types of real estate investors, which the reason I found it so interesting is because in some ways sentiment actually affects the real estate market. If people don't have confidence in it, by golly. <laughs> houses don't sell, you know, and if people are are very hot on it. And, um, so I was hoping to have a bunch of time to discuss this and we just don't like we're out of time. Uh, I would like to offer though, to any listeners who are interested in reading this, it's very plain English. Uh, apparently it was just released to, uh, to the news media today. It's got nice, pretty charts and graphs. Um, and I appreciate you sending this to us. And if listeners, if you want to, see a copy and you'll actually read it, send me just send me an email at askvina at gmail.com with Sharga's report in it. He didn't actually write it, but I will know what you're talking about if you say Sharga's report in the headline. So Rick, I really appreciate your time today as always. Looking forward to seeing what happens in the next year. May have you again halfway through the year. <laughs> if we would love to do it. This hour always goes so fast. I enjoy the conversations. Me too. Me too. Thank you. And listeners, remember that tomorrow night, all-star panel, Pete Fortunato, Pete Fortunato, Donna Bauer, Anthony Chara, Bill Tan, Tom Barry, talking about what they are doing about what's going on in the market in their particular field, CincinnatiRia.com. You can get a link to that meeting. It's on Zoom. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.